0: Welcome to the
1: Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential, and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Heinz, and oh, shit. it's Monday. Lab mates. Well, I hope everyone had a fantastic Halloween. I love seeing everyone's creativity with the costumes. I saw some amazing costumes this year. I think my favorite was my son has a friend who dressed up as a pinata and it was incredible. It was incredible. It was, you know, the pinata donkey, it has all, all the little very thin pieces of Obviously, right? The thin pieces of paper. And he had hundreds of these all over. It was so beautifully done. I don't even know how they did it with the fabric. Anyway, it was clearly they had made it. It was amazing. And then I saw a father and son who were both dressed up as raccoons and they were pulling a wagon that had been kitted out to look like a trash bin. It was so clever, so good. I am not that creative with my costumes. I just dress up as a character. But in the spirit of the Change Lab, and transforming through experimentation, I changed up my Halloween costume for the first time in 11 years. (laughs) 11 years, I mean, over a decade. So I am a loud and proud Harry Potter nerd. And every year, well, at least for the last 11 years, I've dressed up as Minerva McGonagall with the heavy dark green robe and the crooked black witch's hat. And I actually had it custom made for me with the intention that I would be wearing it until the costume expires or I expire. (laughs) So it's like, I'm just gonna one and done, pick one costume and go with it. But yeah, this year I changed it up. I mean, it wasn't that radical of a change because I, I didn't depart from the Harry Potter theme, but I did dress up as Rita Skeeter, the manipulative journalist from the Daily Prophet. I think she makes an appearance in book four with the lime green kind of 1950s Mad Men style outfit. So yeah, it was a little Halloween evolution experiment. And what did I learn? I learned that I much prefer dressing up as (laughs) McGonagall. That's what I learned. The high heels and stocking situation was a terrible call, right? It was just cold and uncomfortable. Frankly, I just like dressing up as a badass wise witch. It's just, I like it better. Nevertheless, you know, I'm going to give myself a high five for experimenting with something with something new. I did something new. Yay me. So, it's the small wins. <laughs> and I did learn something. Speaking of taking small actions, I'm doing my first official giveaway here at the Change Lab. So, if you've ever wanted to work with me, you have a chance to win a free 75-minute private coaching session with Yours Truly. And by private, I mean a one-on-one session with me that is not recorded for the podcast. So if you feel stuck and need some defibrillator paddles on a stagnant area of your life, all you need to do is give the Change Lab a little TLC on whatever app you use to tune in and do so before November 10th. One person will win a session with me and the first 20 to enter will get to pick one of my two favorite personal growth related books. And we'll send it to you as a thank you. So, you know, honestly, I had no idea how much the reviews mattered until I started the Change Lab. And boy, it has been eye opening. Positive reviews and five star ratings are just critical, right? They're just critical to helping the show reach more listeners, listeners who feel defeated and stuck and need a new approach to change. So, if you want to, help this show grow and want a chance to work with me, head over to drsashaheinzcom slash giveaway to get the full instructions. And they're easy. I promise they won't take long. So head over there, drsashahinds.com slash giveaway. And a big cyber hug of thanks to all of you who have already given a five-star rating and a positive review. You are really helping the ceiling of a show grow. So massive thanks. All right, so there is no slick transition that I can make here. So let's uh, awkwardly move to what today's podcast is all about. This week, I'm going to talk about metaphors and specifically the metaphors we use to describe the three-ish pound mass of jelly-like tissue between our ears. So why are metaphors so important? Because they bridge the gap between the familiar and the unknown. The best way that we can grasp an abstract concept is by relating it to something that we already understand, right? A tangible comparison to something that already makes sense to us. So what's a brain like? Oh, it's like jelly. And now we have a vague idea of the texture and fragility of brain tissue because we all know what jello looks and feels like. And for the grammar sticklers out there, I do realize that this example is a simile (laughs) and not a metaphor, but... Both are figures of speech used to make comparisons. So, you know, bear with me. <laughs> Anyhow, the metaphors we use to describe our mind are critically important. And let me list a few reasons why, and I think you're going to agree. First, metaphors are cognitive frames. So the conceptual frame we use to shape our understanding of something abstract informs how we relate to it. So, for example, if you think of the mind as a garden you might relate to your mind as a gardener pruning and nurturing thoughts. But if you think of the mind as a monkey, you then become the zookeeper who must tame or calm your restless mind. Right, The metaphor shapes your inner experience and how you relate to that inner experience. Second, Metaphors influence research and approaches to treatment. This is super important. So thinking of the brain as a machine, right, using that metaphor, might direct us toward mechanistic solutions to mental health. Like this is actually the behavioralist approach, right? Change the external stimulus to change the behavior, a lever. On the other hand, right, conceptualizing the mind as an internal family system, it might center research and treatment around inner dialogue, self-compassion practices, and parts integration. Totally different. Third, metaphors influence public perception and stigma. So describing mental health issues as an objective matter of chemistry is very different from describing mental health issues as a psychological wound. A chemical imbalance requires a pharmaceutical adjustment and a wound requires healing. So two very distinct comparisons, which often get pitted against each other in the court of public opinion. And it can get pretty contentious when it comes to issues like depression and ADHD. You see this clash of approaches, and it's really the metaphor that we're using to describe those two approaches, right, that are clashing. So the fourth reason, metaphors are also educational tools. They simplify complex concepts for those not specifically trained in psychology or neuroscience. And (laughs) let's be honest, for those of us who are trained in psychological science, right? We still need to use metaphors to help us understand complex and abstract ideas. So a well-chosen metaphor can make a concept much easier to understand, while a poor one can lead to misconceptions and myths. And we're going to talk about and get into misleading metaphors in today's episode. And the fifth and final reason I've listed here is that metaphors impact agency and identity. So Depending on the metaphor we're using to describe the mind, people might feel that they have more or less control over their thoughts and actions. So for example, if you describe aspects of your mind as software, it implies that it's changeable. But when you describe aspects of your mind or yourself as hardware, it implies permanence and immutability. And a great real-life example of this in action is with Carol Dweck's work on Fixed or Growth Mindset. Research shows that thinking of the mind as a sort of finished sculpture, something fixed, leads to measurably different outcomes than thinking of the mind as the moldable clay. I mean, there's just a robust body of literature on this. So metaphors are not just fancy wordplay, they're the lens through which we interpret the world. So let's break down some of these mind metaphors that we use. So because we live in the age of technology, it's become the norm to think of our mind as a computer. The comparison is so pervasive now that as I was pulling together notes for today's episode, I was just so surprised by how much computer lingo we use to describe how we operate. See what I'm saying? (laughs) Right? We say things like, humans are hardwired to seek connection or crave sugar. I was programmed to think that way. It's time to unplug and reboot. Those two are just wired differently. It's truly everywhere. We download thoughts and then we process them. We protect ourselves by creating firewalls. Our batteries run low and our memories get overloaded. Without much conscious awareness, we talk about ourselves as biological machines operating on a binary code of ones and zeros. There is, however one glaring problem with this technological metaphor. It gives the impression that the mind always follows an intentional and rational logic and on occasion does, but more often it's driven by feelings, instincts, habits, and deep-seated fears and desires that are ever-changing and largely below our conscious awareness. So to think of the mind as a computer is to presume that our rational conscious mind is at all times in complete control. But you know as well as I do that even the smartest of people, yourself included, do very silly and illogical things on the reg. You might be on your way to get a big old pumpkin spice latte in exchange for a hard workout later in the day that you already know you are not going to do. (laughs) you might have an acquaintance who you gossip about with your friends while knowing that you would be devastated if someone was trash-talking you. You might have barked at your kids for bickering in the car ride to school, even though you have zero, and I mean zero, evidence from intervening in sibling squabbles over the years that this strategy has improved diplomatic relations between your children you might be listening to this podcast episode instead of doing the work you know would feel so good to get done. This is called procrastinate learning. By the way, it's procrastination's more respectable but shrewd cousin. And we're very close friends. <laughs> By the way, procrastinate learning and I are very close friends. So objectively, none of this behavior is logical, right? None. But it is very human. So comparing our mind to a computer is just misleading because your mind and as a result, your behavior doesn't often obey logic. So I asked one of my clients in a recent coaching session to articulate her definition of success. And essentially, she said, success is to go to a college that rhymes with Yarverd or Hale, (laughs) win a Rhodes Scholarship, attend law school at one of those two Ivy League institutions just mentioned, and make the law review, obviously. So, whoops. (laughs) I certainly, I missed that memo. And I'm pretty sure everyone in the history of mankind, minus the number of people who fit into a quarter of a teaspoon, missed that memo too. And she knows full well that her criteria for success is insanely simplistic, not to mention limited in the extreme, entirely about prestige and external validation, and as a bonus, actively tormenting her. And by the way, she gave me her permission to use this, so (laughs) I'm not outing her. And it torments her because her extraordinary academic and professional accomplishments, they don't fit into her one nanometer wide parameters of success but she would be the first to admit that this rubric of success is bonkers. In our session, in fact, after she laid this all out, she said, you know, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed to even admit this. And you know, a part of her can see that it doesn't make sense, right? On a cognitive level, she totally gets that her idea of success is total BS, but in her gut, in her gut, it's the real truth. And she just clings to this mental rule book like it's holy doctrine. And let me make this abundantly clear, this client, she's a freaking smarty pants, right? She's supremely bright and her resume is pretty damn jaw-dropping. If I typed her resume into chat GPT, the AI bot would immediately respond back with, nailed it, (laughs) like you are winning at life. But she's not assessing her accomplishments based on the cold, hard facts, even though, you know, of course she thinks she is. No, hell no. She's judging herself based on flawed assumptions and biased information. And this, my dear lab mates, is true for all of us. In the immortal words of the late, great Dr. Albert Ellis, we're all fallible, fucked up humans. So if an operating system is not a great metaphor to understand the enigmatic, illogical workings of our mind, then what is? Well, one of the most famous metaphors for the mind is probably from Plato's Phaedrus, the allegory of the chariot and the charioteer. In this allegory, the soul or psyche is depicted as a chariot in the sky driven by a charioteer pulled by two horses, one honorable and obedient, seeking virtue, and the other wild and insolent, seeking the fulfillment of its appetites there is constant tension between reason, the charioteer, moral virtue, the noble horse, and base desires, the ignoble horse. And in order for the chariot or soul to ascend to a state of divine truth and enlightenment, the Ben-Hur-esque charioteer must skillfully control the two horses by executing sound judgment. And with his tight grip on the reins, reason must get these two conflicting forces to work together instead of against each other. So in other words, the ancient Greeks believed that reason was ultimately in charge. And with a strong enough whip and a tight enough hold of the reins, our reason will gain control and dominate our unruly emotions. This is where I think this metaphor gets it wrong. Both of these metaphors, the computer metaphor and Plato's chariot and charioteer metaphor attribute too much power to our conscious processes, that, you know, that inner voice that knows what you should do, and attributes far too little power to our unconscious processes, that gut feeling that doesn't listen to that voice and charges the head with what it wants to do anyway. The best metaphor I think I've ever heard to describe the nature of the human mind. Comes from the social psychologist and NYU professor Jonathan Haidt. So I was so lucky to have Jonathan Haidt as a guest professor back in 2005 when I was studying positive psychology at UPenn, which <laughs> alarmingly is almost 20 years ago. Anyway, that fall semester, he had written the Happiness Hypothesis his book, but he hadn't yet published it. So. It was pretty exciting because we got to read the galley copy. But as we were reading this, we were discussing this metaphor that he uses, and it totally changed the way that I think about how our mind works, even though I don't think back then I entirely understood the wisdom and usefulness of it. But building on the animal metaphor of Plato, Haidt suggested that the mind is better represented by an elephant and a rider an elephant who doesn't know her size and strength and a rider perched on top holding the reins of the bridle that's fastened around the elephant's head. So the elephant represents the unconscious processes directing our actions, particularly when emotions are activated. And this weighty giant is powerful, hard to control and acts on raw emotions, gut instincts, visceral reactions, intuition and habits. The rider represents the conscious cognitive processes directing our actions. And this animal Wrangler holding the reins feels powerful and in control because, you know, she or he is the brains, not the muscle. But even with all the logical pep talks and compelling plans, when the elephant has desires of its own, the rider has about as much control as a parent has over a toddler crashing from a sugar high. Not a whole lot. So We like to believe that our actions are guided by reason, the rider, but our emotions and intuitions, the elephant, often have a much greater influence on our choices and actions. So the bottom line, if the elephant and the rider disagree on which direction to take, the elephant's gonna win every damn time because, well, it has a six-ton weight advantage and from all my work with clients over the years and all my frustration with my own irrationally stubborn behaviors and most importantly the groundbreaking research that's been done in the field of adult development i think the elephant and rider wonderfully represents the relationship between our conscious commitment to grow and our unconscious commitment to protect ourselves the emotional elephant is actually a great way to conceptualize your psychological immune system so In future episodes or coaching sessions, you'll probably hear me refer to someone's psychological immune system as their inner elephant, and now you'll understand why. So this elephant and rider metaphor, it still represents the tension between emotion and reason, which is what I think Plato gets very right but the very significant difference is in the dynamic between the rational rider and the emotional elephant, right? The rider is not in control as much as he likes to think he is. And reason, <laughs> reason is not in control as much as we like to think it is. So for height, and I would argue that developmental science is on his side, the rider can be all about the gains and hit the gym as much as he likes trying to strengthen our reason, but it still doesn't change the fact that the emotional elephant is bigger and stronger by, you know, a mere six tons. Arm wrestling with your emotional elephant is just plain stupid. (laughs) That's the deal. And the same is true with reason and emotion. If your reason gets in the ring to fight your emotions, eventually it will lose. That's the battle that you're in with the resolution model of change. I think it's far more accurate to think of the rational rider more like an advisor to the emotional elephant boss. The rider's advice and guidance is wise, useful, and often it's so clear, right, that it would make the elephant's life better. But ultimately, the emotional elephant only follows the rider's advice when it feels like it. If your elephant is scared, overwhelmed, or uncertain, your rider's advice will fall on deaf ears. And when the elephant isn't listening to your smart rider, right, if your emotions are not listening to your reason, then what does your rider do? Well, the rider tries to pretend that he or she's in control and starts to justify and rationalize the direction the elephant wants to go. So it sounds like this. I know I said I wouldn't say this money, but these shoes are on sale and they'll just go with everything. You know what? These shoes will help me wear more of what I already have. I'll get more mileage out of my closet. So I'm spaving, right? I'm I'm spending to save. Only humans are capable of rationalizing using something to conserve it. Or your rationalization may sound even, you know, slightly more noble. I need to get this report finished, but if I just get on top of my inbox first, I'll feel so much more clear-headed and ready to focus. I'll just do that first. Good idea right our rational side isn't always the driving force of our actions right it can be the pr agent that spins the message in favor of what our emotional side wants to do or you know just did it's brilliant our reason is brilliant at concocting post hoc justifications and rationalizations so the question is do we have any personal agency to change ourselves and our lives or are we just unconsciously repeating old crappy patterns and working our butts off to keep a fresh coat of gold paint on that turd. (laughs) Just gilding the turd. Well, it entirely depends on how skillful your rider is at working with and harnessing the immense power of your elephant. So if you want to develop the skill of working with your mind, you need to start by embracing these three truths. First, your elephant is stronger and more forceful than your rider, period. (laughs) That is the darn truth. That is an unequivocal fact. So in accepting this truth, you must also internalize that any time your rider tries to fight, chastise, or strong arm your elephant, it will only work until your elephant rebels and realizes that she's a whole lot more powerful than your rider. Second, your emotional elephant's size and power is both an asset and a liability. So, your elephant has more raw power, which means if it's left unsupervised, it can just cause chaos and mayhem. But if the elephant's emotional heft and weight are moving in the right direction, it's unstoppable. Right? Nothing can stop it, and especially other people's little riders, like mowing it down. So it has just so much. Positive force too, if moving in the right direction. And third, to get your untrained emotional elephant to move in the direction your rider wants, your rider needs to use skill, not force, right? And an effective rider isn't controlling or domineering. And I hope that this metaphor helps you see and see so clearly how absurd that would be. This little person holding the reins on the back of a massive African elephant, right? It can be kicking and pulling at the reins and yelling and screaming and doing whatever it wants to do to try to control and dominate the elephant, but it's just absurd. You can just so clearly see that. So instead, your rider needs to use the advantages that it does have, and it does have advantages. It does have its own power, and that is higher order thinking, problem solving, analyzing, future planning, strategizing. Perspective taking, and this is critical the ability to learn from other people's experience. So, the beauty of the writer is that the writer doesn't necessarily have to learn something hands on. The writer can see someone else make a mistake and say, Oh, I'm not going to do that. Or it can get advice from another writer and internalize it. So, very important the writer can be very wise counsel. But what I love most about this metaphor is that it just so clearly shows what the job of the rider really is. If the rider wants to skillfully guide her elephant, the rider has three primary jobs. To coach, to soothe emotional distress, and to facilitate hands-on learning. The writer Needs to coach, right? It is the rider's job to compassionately observe the elephant's behavior and give solution-oriented feedback. Not critical feedback, but useful feedback. Growth is only possible when we consciously confront the emotional truth that we're avoiding. So only the rational rider can do this and learn to do it with love, compassion, and support. The rider needs to soothe emotional distress. The rational rider needs to develop the skills to help the emotional elephant manage, you know, big, challenging emotions, to help the elephant calm down when it's freaking out or melting down. An activated emotional elephant cannot hear reason at all. I mean, think about yourself when you're really emotionally activated. Are you listening to your rider? No. I mean, look at a toddler melting down. Are they listening to your rider? Nope. Not at all. Neither, by the way, are you. But when your emotional elephant is calm and feels safe, it's much more willing to consider the wise advice of the rational rider. So soothing emotional stress is a big job that the writer has. And finally, the rider needs to facilitate, you know, hands-on experiential learning. So to effectively move our big emotional elephant in a desired direction, the rider's wise counsel is not enough. Like the words are not enough, right? That's when people are like, I intellectually understand this, but my gut says otherwise. You know, my client who's saying, I intellectually, cognitively see that this rubric of success is bananas and pajamas, but it's true. (laughs) At a gut level, it just feels true, right? It, It has her constricted. So the writer really has to Get the elephant's heart into it. It has to help the elephant experientially learn that perhaps the assumptions that it is living by are maybe not true, right? And when the rider's head and the elephant's heart are aligned, when the rider can persuade and teach and show the elephant that maybe something is not as scary or overwhelming or true as it thought it was, then the elephant's feet will start going where the rider wants the elephant to go. So to help your emotional elephant overcome her resistance to change, the rider needs to learn how to connect and coach, not control and chastise. So why why are we talking about metaphors? Why should we care about the metaphors we use, especially the ones we use to describe our mind? Because if we want to become skillful self-changers, we have to first understand the dynamic that we're actually dealing with and the most useful metaphor that i've come across bar none right to capture the nature of our divided mind is Heights metaphor of the emotional elephant and the rational rider and i hope this metaphor really helps you understand with a bit more clarity the frustrating disconnect between what you know and what you actually do because when your rider and your elephant disagree your elephant ultimately is going to win. So these are the choices, right? You either live by the whims of your elephant or you help your rider become a more skillful elephant trainer and get the elephant on board with the changes the rider wants to make. And that takes skill. So, all right, your lab work for this week. There's two parts. The first part is to leave a five star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so you can be eligible to win a 75 minute one on one coaching session with me, and also just to support the podcast and the growth of the podcast, I'd so appreciate it. So go to drsashaheinz.com/slash/giveaway for all the details. And part two is to start to exercise your rider's compassionate self-observation skills. So set a timer for, you know, three minutes. Very short, guys. That's it. Set a timer for about three minutes and just jot down a few issues that are in your life right now where your elephant and rider are disagreeing. And next to those issues, I want you to jot down which of the two, the rider or the elephant, which is getting its way. For the advanced version of this lab work, next to who's winning, if it is your elephant that is winning, I want you to write, how is the rider rationalizing what the elephant is doing? It's very illuminating. So it will take three minutes and you will learn a whole lot about what's going on with your elephant and rider and give you some ideas for where to move next. All right, y'all have a wonderful week and I will meet you back in the lab next Monday. more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashaheinz.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com or find me on Instagram at Heinz. If you're enjoying The Change Lab, there are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share the show with a friend or five, or head over to drsashaheinz.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next Monday.